Please open your Bibles to the letter to the Ephesians, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. I'll remind you that we have just concluded a five-week sermon series entitled, We Are His Creatures, in which we uh, try to understand, address, and answer uh, three issues in the culture that are creeping into the church, dealing with specifically the issues of abortion, homosexuality, transgenderism. And last week we concluded with a message, um, how to live in a world where there's substantial disagreement on those issues. And that series is available on our podcast. You can contact the secretary as well for that series if you want a physical copy. But now we return to our study of Ephesians. If you remember, we began at the beginning of the school year in 2019, and we concluded our last message closing out the first half of the book. And so this morning, I thought it'd be helpful to do some review and overview, review of what we've done, an overview of what's to come so that we can land, God willing, next week um, in chapter 4. So Ephesians is six chapters. It's what we call a prison epistle written by the Apostle Paul from prison to the church at Ephesus. The church is striking for its lack of problems. You can read 1 Corinthians, and they just sort of stack up. But there's no obvious doctrinal issues that Paul is correcting. There's no obvious false teaching that Paul is dealing with, as there are in many of his epistles. And so this is helpful for us because he's writing to a church and to the churches of Asia Minor who, who are relatively healthy, who are growing. And so we get the, the issues that are helpful for Christians in all seasons of life. The letter divides in half, the first three chapters primarily covering doctrine, the last three chapters covering duty, or you could think of it from a a verb tense. We have indicatives, things that are, things that are true, dominating the first half of the book, and then imperatives, commands in the second half. Or you could think of the first half as orthodoxy, and the second half as orthopraxy, whatever you prefer. But we're now at this divide where we're going from here is what is true, primarily the focus being, to here's how to live in light of that truth, primarily, even though we'll see Paul weaves in plenty more instruction in it. So quickly, by way of overview of the first half of the book, the first three chapters, Paul gives his opening greeting in the first two verses of chapter one, and then he proceeds to a long sentence. Verse three to 14 is one uninterrupted Greek sentence We could call that a benediction. It's a giving of praise or thanksgiving or blessing to God in which he summarizes the Trinitarian God's work in salvation in each and every one of our lives. And we learn in that benediction that in eternity past, God chose you. He chose me and he called us. The Son ransomed and redeemed us by his blood and the Spirit has been given to us as a guarantee and a promise for our inheritance. We realize that grace upon grace upon grace has been lavished to those in Christ. We are acted upon every member of the Trinity going back into eternity past, looking forward into eternity future at work, making sons and daughters for God. And from there, Paul transitions in verse 15 to a pastoral prayer. He gives thanks to them in their hearing, and then he prays for them. Primarily what he's praying for is their understanding Right, We see that in verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. In many respects, I think the teaching in chapter 2 is what he primarily has in mind. This prayer before chapter 2 and the prayer after chapter 2 both have a huge emphasis on understanding. And so I think centrally, 
that what Paul declares in chapter 2 is what he's praying beforehand and after that they might understand, that they might take in and process. And I think we'll see the teaching in chapter 2 is central to the application in 4, 5, and 6, which gets us then to chapter 2. And chapter 2 is made up of two stark contrasts, two before and afters, two you were this, but now you're this. The first contrast taking place in verses 1 to 10 focuses on your individual, personal stance before God. Before you and I were children of wrath. Before, let's just read it, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. It's important for us to focus on this here because walking is going to be a huge theme in the rest of the book. It's one of the reasons why I think these contrasts located here are central to his instruction in the first half and to laying out the application in the second. So bear that in mind. We once walked one way, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body, in the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now there's the before, and then the contrast hinges wonderfully in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. If you're a Christian, it's because God made you alive. He regenerated you. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. But God did this for a purpose. And we're going to see that purpose here in a moment. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. This is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus Four good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So don't miss that. We used to walk one way in verse 2. And now we've been made alive. We've been raised. We've been seated. We've been recreated and refashioned so that we could walk a different way. Remember that. Next, contrast is not individual but corporate. It deals with our issue as Gentiles being included into the people of God. So the first contrast is primarily individual, primarily vertical, dealing with our vertical relationship with God. The second contrast is corporate, and it largely deals with horizontal realities. There are vertical realities in here, but it deals with specifically the problem as Gentiles. How can we be at peace and made one with Jews? especially in light of the law of Moses and what it calls upon. So let's just read that one. I want to read chapter 2, and then we can move on. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And there is our problem. We're hopeless, covenantless, Christless, peopleless. 
And this is important. Let's pause because one of the instructions we're to see in the second half of the book is no longer to live like the Gentiles. So this emphasis on, remember you Gentiles. Remember what you were formerly like. But then we get one of these wonderful, but now in Christ, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And so the problem we had corporately was our division, our separation from God and his Messiah and his people and his promises. And now we learn God has not made us Jews He has not made us into Israel, but he's taken the Jews and he's taken the Gentiles and he's made us both into the church. He's made one new man, verse 16, might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off, peace to those who are near. For Through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone into whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple into the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. So the first contrast dealt with our individual alienation from God. We were by nature children of wrath. We were dead. We were slaves. And he solved that by making us alive and freeing us and lifting us up with Christ and seating us with him and making us anew that we might walk differently. The second problem, we as Gentiles were separated from the people of God, his covenants, his promises, his Messiah. He has made us now into one new man. He has made us into a holy temple for God. Now those two themes. Our individual salvation accomplished so that we might bear different fruit and our union together as the church of God become the dominant themes of the second half of the book. The the primary response of how we're to live is in light of those two realities. I'm not wanting to minimize the other truth in chapters one and three, but I think those two contrasts of chapter two really set up an account for most of what is said in the second half of the book. Chapter 3, then, is really a setup for and an execution of one more prayer. Where Paul speaks of this mystery setting up. He reminds us again he's in chains. And then he prays for the church. And again, what he's praying for is understanding and unity and Christ-likeness. I just want to close reading reading, reading Paul's prayer of chapter 3. Then we can dive into actually our notes. This is all introduction. Verse 14, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend, now notice the unity, with all the saints. This is a group project. What is the breadth, the length, the height, the depth, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So that's where we've been, okay? Now let me try to briefly give you an overview of where we're going. 
The second half of the book has some markers to help divide it up. The most obvious one is Paul breaking up the next few chapters along the lines of walking. Remember back in that first contrast, we were dead and we walked one way, and now we're fashioned anew in Christ to walk a different way. And so look at 4, verse 1, we get our first walk. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Then look at verse 17. Now this I say in testifying the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles did. You see how that even combines the first and second contrast. Remember you Gentiles, you used to live this way. He wants us to walk differently and hear the difference. It's not like the Gentiles. Then look at 5, 2. 5, 1 and 2. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. 5, 8. At one time you were darkness, but now you are children of light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And then 5.15, look carefully then how you're to walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Do you see how this theme of walking is dominant in those chapters? So what we're going to do is look through, move through my outline here. I'm going to give you the blanks to fill in. My goal is that as we study through the epistle to the Ephesians, you'd have a better grasp of where we've been, where we're at, where we're going, and how this fits together. That we might view it as a, as a, as a unit. It's one letter. It's one epistle. So, beginning with the first walk, where we'll begin next week, he calls us to walk in a worthy manner. Walking in a worthy manner. And the idea of worthy is fitting. And he has two ideas in mind. The first, in verses 1 to 6, is the call and basis for unity. The call and basis for unity. That's, that's responding to the unity made by Christ in his people. Let's read the first six verses. I therefore, prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Now, there's the call for unity. If we're going to be unified, we've got to have these attitudes. We need to prioritize keeping the peace. The idea here is that Christ has made peace for us, so we're called not to make it in, in, in Paul's schema here, but rather to keep it, to maintain the unity and the peace that Christ has made. There's the call. And then the basis for that unity is in verses 4 through 6. Because there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So we have the call for and the basis of our unity. We're to be unified. We're to prioritize attitudes that promote the unity, maintaining the unity, because of the unity of our salvation, the unity of our call. Next, he then focuses on maturity. The first six verses are unity. The second six verses, maturity. The gifts and the work of maturity. We're going to take probably a few weeks to get through this first walk, but in Paul's mind, walking in a worthy way, walking in a fitting way of our salvation is walking in a way that preserves and prioritizes the unity of the body while also building the body up in love. That's what it means to walk in a worthy manner, in a fitting manner with our salvation. This is, again, another reminder why... We weren't saved 
to just walk off into the sunset with Jesus. We were saved into the body to maintain the unity of the body and to build the body up in love. So now he shifts to this individual notion of gifts, each one of us being gifted individually, and the purpose of that gifting is to do the work of the ministry, which is the building up the body of Christ in love. And we're going to end this section back at that temple picture that we introduced in chapter at the end of chapter 2. For by, but the grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles and the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and the teachers. So he gave gifted men to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Notice, it's not these people he gave the church that do the ministry. They're the equippers so that everyone can do the ministry because, verse 7, grace was given to each one of us to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, which is the building up of the body of Christ. To what degree or measure? Till we attain the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Then negatively, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human coming, cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Okay, how do we do this work of ministry? How do we build the body up? Rather, speaking the truth in love, we grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body is joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So the first walk that Paul looks at is walking worthily, and in his idea, a fitting, worthy way of living, because the notion of walking is how you conduct yourself. In Paul's day, there wasn't Uber, and so you walked about. You know, it sounds Australian, right? You go for a walkabout. But you walked about, and so this is your daily conduct. That's what walking is picturing. Your daily conduct ought to be a daily conduct that is fitting, worthy, of the call to which we've been called. And in this first walk and focus, it is prioritizing the unity of the body and the the character traits that promote unity and recognizing each one of us has a part to play in building the body up, maturity of the body. So that's walk in a worthy manner, the call and basis for unity, and then the gifts and work of maturity, which then brings us to our second walk. Walk not as the Gentiles do. And here the focus is on the new man. The new man. Let's just read it. First, the futility of the unbelieving mind. He's again going to remind us what we formerly were. Now I say this and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. In the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding. Alienated from the life of God because the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensual sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Note again also, even though he addressed his audience as primarily Gentiles, they're Gentiles no more. What do you mean? Well, they're Christians now. And in Paul's economy, they're neither Jew nor Greek. They're Christians. They're no longer to live as the Gentiles do, even though in one sense he can refer to them, you Gentiles in the flesh. That's not their fundamental identification any no longer. And he reminds them of what their countrymen how they would live and were to live differently. And the focus here is the new man, which brings us then to the school of Christ and the process of change. He doesn't just tell us to no longer live that way, but he tells us how to actually change. This next chunk from a biblical counseling, Christian counseling perspective is, is foundational for how change takes place. 
But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off the old self, which belongs to the former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. To be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Put off, renew, put on. There's a biblical process of change. And so there's always the put off and the put on, which leads us to the contrast at end out chapter 4. The conduct of the new self. Now look at that. You're going to see this here. Precisely given that paradigm we just got. Put off the old man. Be renewed in your mind. Put on the new man. We're going to see not this but that. Therefore, having put away falsehood, put off falsehood. What should I put on, Paul? Let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor. That's the put on. For we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity for the devil. Let the thief no longer steal. Put off. What should he put on? Rather, let him labor, having honest work with his, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. You see, do you see that pattern coming out of this? You just said, okay, put off, put on. And now we're getting, don't do this, do this. It's hugely important from, from a sanctification standpoint. We can focus on the sin that we're to put off, but we need to also think about, well, what corresponding virtue needs to be put on? So let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. If you have a problem with your tongue and corrupt speech, it's not enough to bridle your tongue. That's good. You've got to learn to edify and encourage and give grace. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander be put away from you along with all malice. What should I do, Paul? Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So the second walk is focusing on the new man. Don't act like the old man. Don't act like you used to act, Gentiles. Be transformed, put off, put on, renew, and then bear the fruit in keeping with the new man. Our third walk, verses chapter 5, 1 to 6, walk in love. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So the first call is to imitate God's sacrificial love. We're to look to Jesus Christ, how he gave himself up for us. We're to love as he loved. He's going to come back to this scene when he addresses husbands specifically. Well, this is to be true of all of us. And then, strangely enough, to our eyes, he tells us what to renounce. We are to imitate God's love. What does it mean to walk in love? Not only does it mean to imitate God's sacrificial love, but to renounce immorality, which God will certainly judge. And we'll, we'll get to this in a few months, but I think it's interesting that Paul puts this under the title of walking in love, because usually, precisely in the name of love, we do the following things. Most sexual sin is justified by love. And yet here, we get this strong warning, and it becomes clear that to walk in love is precisely to avoid immorality and fornication, which means it's unloving to do those things. No matter what your heart tells you, whether this thing's bigger than the both of us, whatever excuses we have, it's unloving to walk in sexual immorality. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you. As is proper among saints, let there be no filthiness, no foolish talk, nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. We're still doing the put off and put ons notice. 
For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. We just got done a series that highlighted our culture's confusion about the role and place of sexuality and its legitimate expression. And here we get clear in certain words that the, the church needs to be certain on these things, sure on these things. These things ought not to even be named among us. And notice the language we have here. It's almost as if Paul anticipates other voices saying, no, not so, not true. You may be sure of this. Let no one deceive you with empty words. So what is it that I can be sure of, Paul? What is it that no one should deceive me about? Get this stark warning here in verse 5. Everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. You cannot give yourself to these things. You cannot walk in these things habitually and think you're going to heaven. Take it up with the text. That's Paul's stark warning here. And part of what it means to walk in love is to walk imitating Christ and God and walking in purity. So walk in love. Imitate God's sacrificial love. Renounce immorality, which God will certainly judge. Yeah, Paul anticipates all the arguments we hear today. It's no big deal. We're in love. We're in a committed relationship. And he says, uh-uh. We'll get to this. Now we get to verse 7 and 8. Therefore... Do not become partakers with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Walk as children of light. Here the emphasis is on separation from the world and holiness. First, in verses 8 to 11a, it's to separate. Do not participate in evil. The, The root notion of the word holiness is separation. When it says... When the scripture tells us that God is holy, 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 it means God is other, other, other. He is unlike everything else. He's in his own categories, in his own class. It's the basis of God saying, to whom will you compare me or liken me to? You see those shirts that say, you know, God's like Coke, he's the real thing. It's kind of blasphemous because the whole point is, no, he's not. You can't draw a picture of him because he's not like that. He's other, he's holy. That's why you can speak of inanimate objects as holy. The shovel in the temple that removes the ash from the sacrifices and the altar is holy. It doesn't mean it's moral. It means you don't use it for digging other holes. It's set apart. And so for us to become more and more holy is to become more and more separate from the world and more and more set apart for God's use. Now, we primarily use that word with ethical ideas in mind, But that's the more holistic idea of holiness, being set apart, being separate for God's use. And that's what he's calling them to here. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. Instead, expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. I mean, we felt even some of that shame in the last weeks as we were talking about some of the topics we had to talk about. We're not to take part in them. We expose them. The idea here is that light helps make sense of these things. The light of God's word, the light of truth, helps us and our neighbor make sense of and understand these things. That's what he's calling them to, to be separate from, to not participate in evil, and rather to expose evil with light. Take no part 
and the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it's shameful even to speak of the things that are done they do in secret. But when anything is exposed to the light, it becomes visible. For everything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Walk as children of light. Walk as people who are holy, separate from the world, and yet our lives and our conduct and our speech making sense of shedding light on what is done in the world. This brings us then to the final walk. Walk in wisdom. I've listed this walk as going all the way through 6-9. And it's because, even though in one sense, this section, there's there's clearly a divide between 21 and 22, where Paul enters into what is referred to as the household code. Paul's household code of relationships really flows out of the instruction to be filled with the Spirit. Even supplying the verb that 22 assumes is really found in 21. So I'm going to treat it as one unit, even though it's sort of leaving the walking section and entering into the final section of the book. Walk in wisdom. And the idea here is spirit-filled relationships. That gives the the contrast, the put-off, put-on. Do not be filled with, drunk with wine. Be filled with the spirit. Be filled with, here's your blank, and controlled by the spirit. And that's the idea, that the contrast between drunkenness, you fill yourself with alcohol. What does it do? It controls you. It directs your speech. You can tell someone who's been drinking heavily by the way they talk, by the way they walk, by what they do, by what things they think are appropriate, by the decisions they make. Alcohol, at the level of drunkenness, controls and pervades you. Don't do that. Be filled with the Spirit. And what we see is that when you're filled with the Spirit, the Spirit controls your actions and your words and your conduct and your relationships. Be filled with and controlled by the Spirit. That's what it means to walk in wisdom. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. The fruit of drunkenness is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit, and then we're going to see the fruit of being filled with the Spirit. What does that look like? What type of fruit does that bear? Addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Oh, it, it, it affects what we say to each other. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now there's the setup for the rest of the chapter through chapter 6, verse 6. In general, these are things we're all to do. And then Paul's going to zero in on specifics. That the, the, the flow of thought is, as we get to husbands and wives, one of the marks of being filled with the Spirit is we speak to another in Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. One of the marks and the evidences of being filled and controlled and directed by the Spirit is how we sing. Notice it's not tongues and it's not prophecy. It, the fruit of the Spirit is pretty straightforward. It's, it's remarkable how straightforward it is. What, how do you know you've met a spirit-filled person? They're doing these things. And then you can move further. How do you identify a spirit-filled wife? How do you identify a spirit-filled husband? Spirit-filled parents, spirit-filled children, spirit-filled slaves, spirit-filled masters. That's, that's the rationale. If the spirit is filling us and directing us, we walk differently, we walk in wisdom, and it That then directs, point B, let the Spirit direct your relationships. With three pairs, wives and husbands, 
children and servants, slaves and masters. Interestingly, in every pairing, the weaker or the more exposed and more vulnerable party is brought first. Wives and husbands, children and parents, slaves and masters. Let's read. Wives, submit to your own husbands. Notice the connection. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then here's your first example, your first case study. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. The husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. The most challenging portions of the Bible are not hard to understand usually. They're hard to do. They're hard to receive and embrace. If that's hard, he gives far more attention to the husbands next. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. What does a spirit-filled husband look like? It looks like a sacrificial, dying husband. C.S. Lewis, commenting on this passage, made the point that what this means then, if husbands are to imitate Christ in his sacrificial death for the church, that husband whose marriage is most like a crucifixion is most fulfilling this passage. I don't want you to think either party has it easy in that sense. Both husbands and wives are called to radical self-denial, radical obedience. So that he might notice the goal that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. You know, when I meet young couples and we're doing premarital, they're usually interested in do we have the same interests, we like the same things. I'm looking really for one thing, this dynamic. What's the fundamental job in Ephesians of a husband? Sanctify your wife, wash her with the water of the word. Wife, lean into that, don't resist that, don't resent that. That's the dynamic that I'm looking for. Do I see a man who shows any ability to sanctify this woman, to minister to this woman, to wash her with the word? Do I see a woman who resists that or leans into it? Is this woman more like Jesus Christ because of the time she spends with this man? Everything else is, is far, on a far lesser tier in my mind. That's, that's the dynamic I'm looking for. Christ gave himself up, not that he could come home, turn on the TV and say, okay, I'm done, but rather to sanctify his bride. So he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle, or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. And then he does something remarkable. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound that I'm saying. First, to Christ and the church. Paul just said that Genesis 2 is speaking of Christ and the church. God created marriage and the relationship between husbands and wives so that when Christ came and died and redeemed for his bride, the church, there would be a picture, there would be an image to draw upon to say it's kind of like that. And then our job in our marriages is to make that imaging true. Which means that as husbands are doing this and as wives are doing this, we're rightly reflecting. The world should be able to look to our marriages and learn something about the gospel, about Christ and his church. Conversely, we can pervert that image and and lie about Christ and lie about the church in our marriages. That's why marriage matters. We'll get to that. Then chapter 6, the next pairing, children and parents. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Notice again the primary 
command for the instruction, the spiritual instruction of children is the fathers. Not that wives and mothers aren't having a role in this, but the, the one who God's going to hold to account men is us. And, and use, use all the tools you ever dispose of. You take, make use of your wife and other people in the youth pastor. Pastor Daniel's not fundamentally going to be called upon for the rearing of your children in the Lord. You will. That's the command again and again is given to fathers primarily. Let me move to slaves, ESV as bond servants, primarily because slavery in Paul's day was a little different than the slavery you and I most likely think of in our continent. Not terribly dissimilar, but not totally similar. So they come up with bond servants, but bond servants obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. That is not very woke. But it's biblical. Not by the way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as bond servants or slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he'll receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. <clears throat> and that ends Paul's household code. So the last walk flows into spirit-filled relationships, which gives instruction for some of the primary relationships in the church and in life, husbands and wives, parents and children, slaves and masters. Which then brings us to the final part of exhortation before the final greeting. We're now what's commonly known as put on the whole armor of God, the armor of God. And so we'll pick it up in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. That's a good reminder for us, even as we're looking around at the health concerns. We are engaged in a battle with a spiritual enemy who does not rest. And we need to not lose focus of that. How we respond to the present health crisis is a matter of spiritual reality and we will succeed or we will fail in that spiritual battle. We, we need to act wisely and well and with good courage. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand firm. Don't shrink back. Stand, therefore. Three times he had to say it. You get the idea? He wants us to stand firm, not to shrink back, not to cower. Have we put on the belt of truth and put on the breastplate of righteousness, and his shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So there's the individual pieces of the armor. Um, the individual pieces of the armor. And then in the final section there, the need for alertness and prayer. The attitude that we should have on wearing that armor. Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplications. 
To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me. I, I take great comfort from this. You, know, you read Paul, and he is so bold. You read Romans. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And here Paul's saying, hey, could, could you guys pray for me that I wouldn't shrink back, that I wouldn't be ashamed, that I wouldn't be afraid? That words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Paul needed prayer and struggled with fear. And that's the way we conduct ourselves. By the way, also notice here that Paul begin, began this entire section back in chapter 4, verse 1, referencing his imprisonment, and he references it here again. It's another one of those inclusios, the bookends of this entire section of application. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, I'm an ambassador in chains. And then he ends his epistle with his final greetings. So that you also may know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how you, we are, and he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with, an in, with a love incorruptible. So that's, that's where we're going in the next couple of months. We're going to go through those five walks. The fifth walk, being filled with the Spirit, is going to flow into the household code. And we're going to look at those relationships. We're going to look with greater detail at husbands, wives, parents and children, masters and slaves. We're going to look at the armor of God. This is all about living in the world. This is all about how to conduct ourselves, how to put into practice the glorious realities found in the first three chapters. I'd encourage you, um, as we have more time today, due to not having our ABF or small groups, to, to devote yourself to prayer and maybe to consider reading this epistle. We just read the second half of it. You can read the entire thing in 15 to 20 minutes and, and, and see the flow of thought, how Paul sets up in the first half of the book that which he calls us to practice in the second half. Um, theology is always practical. And if God's word is not changing and informing the way you and I live, we are not understanding it rightly. My, my prayer will be that we will be gathering regularly in the coming weeks, that we will gather fearlessly, um, and that we would be putting into practice walking in a worthy manner. I'm going to call the worship team up for our closing song. I'll remind you there is no coffee, there is no donuts. We would encourage you to uh, not to spend too much time congregating here, but to, to go, to try to do what we can to restrain... Um, problems going on in our surroundings, to devote ourselves to prayer and the study of the word.